football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. What's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? Excited about this episode of the podcast, episode number 41 for us. But let's warm things up first. Uh, this is a question that has kind of been on my mind while watching the NBA playoffs because there are so many legit Kentucky alums who have had a major impact on what has taken place in the bubble. And so it got me thinking, with all these big-name players, could a team of just Kentucky alums in the NBA win the title? What would you think? Yeah. absolutely absolutely right I mean you just think of the guys who were in the conference finals like Anthony Davis Jamal Murray Tyler Hero like that you just start there right and bam and bam Bam, I mean like that if that's your four like if if that's your four and there are a whole lot of other Kentucky guys in there don't get me wrong but if that's just your four and Ray John Rondo was also in the conference finals that's right so you just take Kentucky players in the conference finals Yeah, that's a pretty good five right there. How about we add these names? Are you ready? So you mentioned A.D., Bam, Jamal Murray, Tyler Hero, Rajon Rondo. How about Devin Booker? You would also have on that team. How about Shea Gilgis-Alexander coming off the bench? Eric Bledsoe, who's a starting point guard for the team that had the best record in the league. De'Aaron Fox, Carl Anthony Towns, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Like, you'd be leaving off studs. Like, DeMarcus Cousins, would he even make the team? John Wall, Trey Lyles. Like, would they be even on the team? Like, that's how many high-quality Kentucky alums there are in the NBA. Uh, So, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that is a team that would legitimately contend, if not run away, with an NBA championship. Yeah, like the main conclusion to draw is Coach Cal probably should have won more national championships so far at Kentucky with all the talent he has uh, running through those hallways. But uh, he will get dudes to the league, and that's probably why he's able to sell that thing so well year after year. Uh, Speaking of selling things well, we're going to talk with a guy who used to be the lead recruiter for the University of Hawaii men's basketball program for two decades with Coach Riley Wallace and Bob Nash. That's right, Jackson Wheeler will join us uh, here on this episode of the podcast. We welcome you once again. Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. Uh, So Wheels will join us. He's currently a teacher at the University of Hawaii, physical education and kinesiology. A great guy to talk to, loves basketball, thinks basketball, Uh, and is responsible for bringing in some of the best talent that this program has ever had, certainly over the last three decades. You think about guys like Trevor Ruffin, Tony Maroney, and then guys we want to specifically talk about, Phil Handy and Anthony Carter, who are both participating in these NBA Finals as assistant coaches. Phil with the Lakers, AC with the Heat. So you got two UH alums who are going to be there in the bubble vying for an NBA championship. Just remarkable stuff. It really is, and a good excuse to get Wills on the show, right? He, he's, he's one of the fun ones, great, great stories always, uh, and a guy, who, a guy who could recruit him, a guy who could bring in some of this top talent. And, and now, all these years later, right, two guys he brought in in the 90s are meeting up in the NBA Finals as assistant coaches. That I don't know if he ever saw coming. Uh, that's coming up in just a little bit, but it's game time. And game on for Hawaii football. The Mountain West last week voted to proceed with a fall football schedule. Season targeted to start October 24th. So similar to the schedule announced by the Big Ten, the schedule itself is still being ironed out with various approvals and exemptions required for several teams, including the University of Hawaii. But all parties seem to be confident, including Commissioner Craig Thompson, that all 12 teams in the Mountain West will participate so the key appears to be that the conference itself has taken on the cost of three times a week testing which will come out of the league's reserve fund we didn't even know they had a reserve fund but that's pretty good timing to hear that announcement so jordan basic question are you ready for some hawaii football yeah i'm excited i'm excited and and 
you know, the cost is a big factor, obviously. Safety is a big factor. Uh, the development of some of these rapid testing is a big game changer. I think we've learned that from a bunch of the different conferences. Uh, and then the fact that you mentioned the reserve fund, because we're talking about, you know, basically all of them are public institutions in the Mountain West. And so you're going to have to answer, hey, how are we affording all of this when, when it's kind of a struggle out there? And and so the conference, you know, maybe had a little foresight, maybe had a bit of a rainy day fund, but the University of Hawaii is out to practice. They are, they are getting ready. They are proceeding now. Uh, as they plan on that October 24th start date. So am I ready for some football? I mean, selfishly, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm ready for some football. I just, you know, hope we can see a lot of these safeguards and whatnot executed properly because we're seeing it at different levels, right, professionally and collegiately, where some of these plans, as well thought out as they are, they aren't foolproof. Yeah, we record this episode just hours after the program at the University of Hawaii held a form of practice and the coaching staff, several members of the team addressed the media. You had Todd Graham, the head coach, saying, hey, look, I didn't come here just to compete for bowl games. I came to win championships. What are the expectations that we can put on this team, though? They're coming off of a 10-win season, as a reminder. They made it to the conference title game. They defeated BYU in the SoFi Hawaii Bowl. You got this new regime in there. They're going to tweak the offensive system from a run-and-shoot to more of an air raid-like offense. You have what is also a signature of Todd Graham, uh, likely to be aggressive, as he likes to say, sideline-to-sideline type of defense. For what it's worth, back in July, Phil Steele picked Hawaii to finish third in the West Division behind favorite San Diego State and Nevada. He also selected 16 Warriors to his preseason all-conference teams. That's actually tops among all the teams in the league. First team included wide receiver Jared Smart, offensive lineman Il Manning, and linebacker out of Mililani, Darius Muasau. That's just to name a few, obviously. But what expectations can we put on this team? It seems as though, at least at the time of his publication, Phil Steele thought that Hawaii had potential to make some noise in that West Division. Yeah, I I think they do. I I think this team is well-built in terms of personnel, right? And there's so many unknowns at this point because we don't know what the schedule is going to look like. Coming into the season with the Mountain West Conference schedule, the understanding was, hey, they were going to have to play Air Force, Boise State, New Mexico again in those crossover games from the Mountain Division. And anytime you've got Boise and a trip to Colorado Springs on the schedule, it's going to be tough, right, to, to pick up wins in those cross-divisional games on top of what you normally are year in and year out with the California and Nevada schools. And so for the University of Hawaii, that is a bit of an unknown. There is still a little bit of mystery, even though we, we know Coach Graham and his staff's track record for sure. I think some of those uh, qualities and traits that we're accustomed to seeing, high-scoring offenses, attacking defenses that force turnovers. Okay, we, we know that, but we, we're, we're still a little unsure as to exactly how they're going to go about doing that. Um, and I think that's a little bit maybe of an advantage as well for Coach Graham and his staff because, hey, they're going to go right into conference play and nobody's going to really have tape on this version of the University of Hawaii. So that's still a little bit of a variable as well. But one thing we do know, some of the talent coming back, right, from Chevron Codero at quarterback to depth at running back behind Miles Reed perhaps uh, with some of the incoming freshmen there. And then offensively, I think they're going to be loaded up front of the offensive line, which is always a great place to start, right, when you're talking about – you know, Tonga Tui Lima anchoring that thing, Il Manning, who's, uh, you know, preseason first team, as you mentioned. And then that receiving core, which is always a strong suit for the University of Hawaii, uh, I think is going to be going to be strong again with Jared Smart back, Melquis Stovall's back on the team. Uh, Nico Bussey for the transfer from North Texas, I think is an intriguing addition as well. Uh, guys like Lincoln Victor, who emerged at the end of the season. So defensively, right, Panevavi coming back is a huge That's deal. Huge. And they've got experience in the secondary as well. Uh, so I, I really think when you look at the roster, that's the one thing we know at this point. We know some of the guys coming back, and that is a great starting point because I think they've got a lot of experience, a lot of quality experience, uh, and, and now we'll find out, okay, what's, what's the path forward going to look like? I, I think the expectation should be relatively high for them, and, and as you pointed out, Coach Graham said, hey, they're here to win championships, so I mean, he's setting the bar high for his guys. I agree with you. I, I think there is reason, too. It is fair to have a level of expectation. Elsewhere in college football, we had some big-time upsets. In fact, no unbeaten season this time around for nationally ranked LSU. They got upset by Mike Leach's Mississippi State squad, 44-34 over the weekend. Mississippi State featuring Stanford transfer quarterback K.J. Costello, who set an SEC record with 623 passing yards and five touchdowns. LSU may be missing 
replacing Dave Aranda as the uh, highly paid defensive coordinator. Who knows? He went on, obviously, to take the head coaching job at Baylor. That was pretty wild, that upset for sure. But you also had number three, Oklahoma. They got rattled. See what I did there by Kansas State for the second straight year, actually. OU was a four-touchdown favorite but lost, thanks in part to three interceptions by freshman phenom quarterback Spencer Rattler, who also threw four touchdowns. He was pretty impressive, but unfortunately some late picks did cost that team. So which of those upsets was the bigger shocker in your mind? Yeah, I still think it's the Oklahoma upset. You mentioned the the, the betting lines were were much more in the favor of the Sooners than LSU, who was, you know, 16 points, roughly a favorite. The, the Tigers lost so much. And this is an Oklahoma team coming in with high expectations, I think even higher than LSU, ranked higher than LSU. Uh, and this is a Kansas State team that lost to Arkansas State the other week. No disrespect to the Red Wolves. Uh, but uh, Kansas State followed up their Arkansas State loss with a win against Oklahoma. So that, that it's it's got to be the Sooners that, that's worse off here. But how about Mike Leach? Yeah, I would say that the more shocking defeat was Oklahoma. I think LSU, you expected a step back, right? I mean, yeah, they're the defending champs. They were undefeated last year, but they sent 14 players to the NFL draft, including their star quarterback and number one overall pick, Joe Burrow. You also had a couple of guys that opted out, wide receiver Jamar Chase, defensive tackle Tyler Shelvin. Uh, I just kind of felt like that was maybe asking a lot of their fourth-year junior quarterback, Miles Brennan, in his first career start. Uh, But then you look at Mississippi State, State. You got a former Pac-12 head coach. You got a former Pac-12 quarterback. Does that automatically qualify the Pac-12 for the college football playoff? Like it adds credence, does it not? Very indirectly. That might be asking a little too much, Uh, but the statement and the point certainly was made by Mike Leach. We move on to the pros now. Week three in the NFL, you have seven 3-0 teams currently. Bills, Steelers, Titans, Chiefs, Packers, Bears, and Seahawks. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Who's the best 3-0 team right now, in your opinion? And probably the more interesting question, to be honest, who's the worst 3-0 team? And I definitely want to hear you say your Chicago Bears. One of those teams is, <laughs> is not like the others. Not, not even not even close. Uh, And that's the Kansas City Chiefs. No, it's definitely the Bears that are far and away. But the Chiefs, I I think you could honestly maybe say that same thing about Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, and that crew. What they did on Monday night was darn impressive. On the road in Baltimore, I get it. There's no fans there and whatnot. But they made a team that I think some people were saying were, were the best team through two weeks. I know I felt that way in the AFC, at least. I thought the Seahawks maybe had the edge as the best team overall. Uh, but they made Lamar Jackson and the Ravens look ordinary, offensively and defensively. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing that, and the Chiefs, the crazy thing with the Chiefs is they had some some glaring miscues offensively, some stall drives, uh, so allowed a kickoff return for a touchdown, and they still won by double digits as a road dog in Baltimore against arguably the second best team in, in the conference for sure and maybe in all of football. And then there's the Bears. They should be 0-3. They should be 0-3, <laughs> and this makes no sense. Nick Foles is the guy going they forward. They've already, they've already announced that, <laughs> that he's going to be the starter in week four. So you've got, you got a 3-0 team that has made a quarterback <laughs> change already. And somehow they've trailed in all three games that they've played in here so far, uh, and in two of them by double digits in the fourth quarter. And yet they are one of just three unbeaten teams in the NFC Yeah, well said. As a Chicago Bear fan like you are, I do appreciate you suggesting that they might be the fakest of the 3-0 teams. The circumstances uh, and the planets seem to align for sure with the comeback victory against my Lions in week one, comeback victory against the Atlanta Falcons, who apparently can never hold a lead anymore in any NFL game, going back to the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty crazy. The Chiefs, though, hey, look, they were the Vegas favorite to win the Super Bowl again. And I just feel like, yeah, that offense looks like it can do anything. And then defensively, I mean, they kind of beat up Baltimore, right? And that was the one thing you would say is, hey, look, the Ravens are probably a little bit more stout in the trenches, but they beat them up. Uh, They they were able to get pressure. They showed Lamar Jackson no respect. They were putting eight guys in the box. They were blitzing from every angle. They showed him no respect for his passing game. Uh, And so, yeah, I think uh, all things considered, I just think the Chiefs, they've been there, done that. They're the defending champs. They got to be my favorite as, as the best 3-0 team so far. A lot of it is based, obviously, on recency bias because that was the Monday night game. Uh, but as, as strong a performance as we've seen from anybody so far, 
this season. All right, well, the Titans are 3-0, and but uh, facing a little Pelikia here. Uh, the Titans organization reported several positive tests within the team, not just players, but also team personnel. And so they shut down the facility until this weekend. The Vikings also taking precautions. They were the Titans' opponent this past weekend. How concerning is this for the NFL, in your opinion? The Titans have, have said that, hey, they're planning, even if they can't get in basically a practice or walkthrough until Saturday, they're still planning on playing the game. That that's, <laughs> seems like a bit much, right? And, and so they've, they've got to try and contain this thing. We saw it kind of wreak havoc in Major League Baseball early on. And then by about midway through their 60-game schedule, they, they seem to really figure it out. I think players maybe took it a little more seriously. Personnel took it a little more seriously. It's a lot easier to make up games, perhaps, in Major League Baseball because you can play doubleheaders and you can play back-to-back day doubleheaders and things like that. That's not an option in the NFL. You can't all of a sudden play two games on Sunday or something like that. You can't play two games in a week. It's just not safe. And so if one or two teams miss a game here or there, maybe they can figure it out, right? You don't have to prolong the season or something like that. But if this spreads, right, and there was concern going into the Bears-Falcons game because of one of the Falcons players who was pulled and placed on the COVID list, uh, the NFL is a giant operation just with the amount of people at, at a game. And you see it even without any fans there. I mean, you're talking about camera crews, NFL films crews, reporters, pe- ball people, and all those kinds of things. Uh, and so this is really the first instance of a team being shut down. And so this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal because if it spreads, and we've seen it in, in college football, we're, we're, we've seen some programs now missing multiple weeks, postponing games multiple weeks. Uh, and for the NFL, if that happens, it's just a big domino effect uh, that could really wreak havoc. Yeah, because I, I don't think the NFL was very clear in its contingency plan for a situation like this. Uh, that's part of the problem with the Mountain West Conference schedule or the Pac-12 or any conference on the college level that's starting a little bit more later in the game, if you will, uh, because they won't have bye weeks to be able to fix some of these challenges that they may run into. Notre Dame is a great example, right? They actually did have to adjust games and dates because of positive COVID tests, but they afforded themselves the opportunity to do that by throwing multiple bye weeks into their schedule. And so they're actually in the process of rescheduling within those bye weeks. The NFL didn't leave itself much wiggle room on that front. And so I do think that it introduces a lot of issues We've already seen a major epidemic of injuries in this early portion of the season because you would assume a lack of preparation physically and otherwise. And so to do that here leading into week four for the Titans, you know, that's kind of an unfair competitive disadvantage. So, you know, how much do you weigh that? I I do think it's a very complex and difficult issue for the NFL and could be made much worse if cancellations are forced to occur. All right, let's talk some hoops. Uh, Lakers and Heat in the NBA Finals. We'll get into the Phil Handy versus Anthony Carter stuff with Jackson Wheeler in uh, just a little bit. But LeBron's making his 10th appearance in the Finals, going up against his former team, coach, team president. Which team winning would be the more intriguing story of all these storylines, in your opinion? I mean, it's a great storyline, right? Because you've got LeBron going for that next title. You've got the Lakers trying to return to prominence you've got the Lakers trying to win in the year that Kobe Bryant just tragically passes away uh, along with his daughter and and so many others in that helicopter crash and then you've got the Miami Heat who are the lowest seeded team to make the finals since that strike shortened year where the Knicks made it as an eight seed in 99 against the San Antonio Spurs you've got a team that that doesn't really have a guy who you would consider an MVP candidate as part of their roster and a Heat team that has been competitive, but hasn't come this close nearly since LeBron James was wearing that uniform. Now he's going up against his former team. So the storylines are, are abound and, and absolutely fascinating. But I do think as, as much as we love a Cinderella in this country, as much as we love that storyline, the underdog, the better story, the most intriguing story out of this would be LeBron sort of taking the mantle from Kobe, right? That the purple and gold is as regal as it gets in professional sports in the United States. And if the Lakers get back there in such a heart-wrenching year season for them with LeBron James as sort of the next guy anointing him as the next great Laker, that's the one. That's, that's the storyline, I think. 
in in a year where there are all of these strange coincidences, right? Uh, in 2009, Kobe's last championship with the Lakers, they played the Rockets in the second round. They played the Nuggets in the third round. They ended up clinching the championship against the Magic in Orlando. Well, this season's Laker team played the Rockets in the second round, played the Nuggets in the third round, and they're in Orlando, and they could be hoisting the trophy in Orlando. So there are just all of these coincidences. It would be the... Uh, highest emotional reaction and response for everybody uh, as observers of basketball if the Lakers won. I'm not trying to say everyone's rooting for the Lakers to win, but I do think that that is clearly the most intriguing story as a way to honor the memory of Kobe Bryant and to do it in such a unique year and in such a unique way. Uh, so I totally agree with you 100% there. And so I will not belabor that point much further. Let's just get to the, the nuts and bolts here. Who you got? I picked the Lakers at the beginning of the season. I had them going into the bubble in the postseason. I'm going to stick with that pick. I think the Heat present such a unique challenge, really, to everybody that they have faced in this playoff run, and the, the Lakers will, will find that out as well. But I still think LeBron has that gear that can get them over the hump. I still think Anthony Davis, when he goes off and they need him to maybe two or three times in this series – to go off and do his thing. Uh, I think when the Lakers are hitting from the outside, that can neutralize what Miami is doing on the zone. Uh, and as, as much as I love what the Heat have done up to this point, I'm going Lakers. Uh, and I'm kind of tempted to say in seven, because I think this is going to be a really good series. But I'll, I, I think I'm going to go Lakers in six. Yeah, I think the Heat, clearly the best defensive team that the Lakers will have faced in these playoffs. The Heat kind of remind me of those old Pistons teams, or like the Chauncey Billups, Ben Wallace teams, right, where they didn't have that one singular superstar. They just had a lot of guys that appeared as though they really enjoyed playing with each other. They played hard-nosed defense. They almost always made the right decision offensively, found the open guy. They had some knockdown shooters. They had a guy who uh, maybe moves as well without the ball, uh, Rip Hamilton then for the Pistons, Duncan Robinson here for the Heat, like just the ability to like run miles and miles during a game off of screens left and right. Uh, so yeah, I think this Heat team reminds me of those Pistons teams and that's why I think it'll be so difficult for the Lakers. A key to me is the Lakers taking advantage of maybe the one advantage they truly have. Aside from LeBron and AD themselves, uh, the Lakers size, right? Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, I feel like they have to contribute strong minutes because that can maybe get the Heat out of what they would prefer to do, which is go smaller. But if the those bigs can't count for those shooters, Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson on the perimeter. And if they start getting open looks, uh, then it might force the Lakers to go small. And I think they may be at a disadvantage, at least as compared to the Miami Heat in that context. So uh, yeah, it should be a heck of a series. All right, we move on real quick before we get to our talk with Jackson Wheeler, Major League Baseball postseason officially underway at the time of this recording. 16-team playoff format. Jordan, are you okay with this version of the MLB postseason? This year, I am. For this year, I am. It's a weird year. It's 60 games. Nobody's going to be out ahead of everybody. You know, you basically get to 30 wins. You're in. For a 162-game season, I don't like it at all. I, I think the five-team in each league, 10 teams total, was a really brilliant format. That wildcard game has been terrific, and it keeps a lot of teams in. But you can't have, like, a 100-win team playing a sub-500 team in a three-game series with the opportunity for them to just bow out. Like in the NBA, they play seven-game series. That higher-seeded team's almost always going to win. In baseball, it is a flip of the coin, and I, I just think it – I just think it waters it down so much, and, and I'm not on board with it. I totally agree with that. The Astros, for instance, a team that gets in with a sub-500 record, they won their first game against the Twins today, and so they have the distinct advantage right now in that three-game series. And if you're a division winner, if you finish as the one seed, there's no real distinguishable reward. I mean, you get to host this first round, uh, but, you know, in this day and age with COVID and all that stuff, the hosting and home field advantage isn't even close to being the same thing and of the same value. So I agree. I felt like the, the top seeds or maybe the top four seeds uh, deserved something uh, to reward them for having a better uh, regular season, something that would have motivated them the regular season. In this format, it's like, you know, it didn't matter if you were 500 or better team. Like, you just kind of coast the regular season, save it all for the postseason. It just seemed kind of weird. All right, time for our Domino's Hawaii main topping. Our talk with former University of Hawaii assistant coach and lead recruiter Jackson Wheeler. Let's get right to it. What's up, Wheels? Uh, great to see you. Great to talk with you. How's life treating you? Life is great. It's been uh, quite uh, the last few years. Uh, I'm full-time faculty at the University of Hawaii now. 
I've really enjoyed being away from basketball. And uh, I, I've been blessed. You know, I had a, as you know, I was sick a few years ago and had a very strange illness that damn near killed me, but came back from that one. And uh, I'm doing well and, and getting closer and closer every day to retiring. Yeah, well, uh, you are definitely en route to a well-deserved retirement. Where is that retirement uh, going to take place? Where are you hopefully, going to be uh, spending the twilight years? Hopefully 2022, 2023, hopefully. Just right around the corner, hope to be living at our home on the big island of Waiman. Um, just looking forward to it. It's been a, a great run. I never thought coming here 30-plus years ago that I'd still be here. So, But it's been a great place. I love Hawaii. It's been a fantastic journey for me here, and I I've enjoyed every step of it, actually. Yeah, well, you spent the better part of two decades as an assistant, lead recruiter for the University of Hawaii men's basketball program under Riley Wallace, under Bob Nash. I mean, just a really remarkable career. And, and it comes to an interesting head here for these NBA finals because you have two University of Hawaii alums, two guys you recruited who are on either side in this thing with Phil Handy with the Lakers and Anthony Carter with the Heat. When you take a step back to look at that, uh, how does that strike you? Well, I think of, of two really, really good players on some of the better teams we ever had here. And I think of two people that you think about where they, their journeys have been so different. You know, AC dropping out of school in eighth grade, actually hustling, playing basketball, getting in this program, going to junior, junior college, Phil Handy, from more like a middle-class family, uh, both parents educated, well-employed, well, uh, went to uh, junior college. and was our first junior college recruit actually out of Northern California and became a, a good connection. So just two different journeys, but two really, really great players and people that I really never thought of really getting into the coaching business. Well, let's kind of go step by step through this thing. What do you recall about your first contact or your first realization of Phil Handy and, and, and kind of that, as you mentioned, journey uh, for him as a rainbow basketball player? Well, he uh, was, a, was a heavily recruited player in junior college. And in those days, we always tried to find a little niche that kind of worked for us. And he had been at a couple junior colleges, and we tended to like to see guys that had a little bit of an edge to it that maybe we're trying to prove people wrong. And so I went in there, I was telling you, Jamie Dixon was on our staff as a part-time dad. And he had called Pete Pontek, who is now one of my best friends, and set up a visit. I went in there, and the next thing I know, I really liked the kid. I knew he had a lot of talent when I watched him, and Pete became one of my best friends at that time also. We just grew together. But Phil was a really talented player, really skinny, and he had a little edge to him. And uh, – I like that about him and always kind of a little, I don't know, like a, not a con artist, but, you know, he had a little street vibe to him. And I like that. And so uh, we recruited him. It got down to us and actually Rick Majerus at that time, who was, I think, uh, either – he might have still been Ball State, but maybe on his way to Utah. And we got down to it. We ended up getting the kid. And it was it was an uh, interesting recruitment like they all are. But we got him eligible finally late, and that was another – story to itself and ended up being a great player on a, one of our more talented teams. That's right. That Actually, you know, that team with Trevor and Tony and those guys, I mean, that was one of the best uh, University of Hawaii teams of all time. Uh, you mentioned Phil Handy, how skinny he was. Uh, my dad used to tell me that his nickname uh, was Two Noodles and a Mustache because uh, <laughs> he had just like these noodle legs. Uh, but, you know, he it sounds like he had game both on and off the floor. He had oh, the yeah, yeah. He, gab he, to go along with the gift. Oh, yeah, he was a sharp guy. I, I watch him every time he gets off on the bench for the Lakers. I look at his legs. They're, they're still so damn skinny, but he's got <laughs> a little more weight in his upper torso. But, you know, people forget that team was a, a very interesting team as it was. We only had really six guys we played. Uh, Jared Akata was a six-man. Kalibia Gee was a starting point guard. Then Trevor was our two-guard. Phil was our three, and then people forget who, sadly, John's passed, but John Belay was a very good player, third leading scorer on that team, and then Tony Baroni, and those guys basically um, went to the tournament. They were very talented. The league was extremely talented in those days, and I remember we lost to San Diego State our last game, and they interviewed Trevor and said, the story's not even close to being over, and it kind of stuck with us, and then we ran the table and, and uh, won a bunch of close games, and uh, played BYU for the championship, and Phil actually carried us the first half. I don't know if you remember, but we were playing quite poorly, actually, our better players like Trevor and 
Mole and Tony were not playing that well. And Tony was exhausted because he had never come out there the whole tournament. And uh, But Phil carried us the first half, and his coach called me after the game. Pete said, hey, you're lucky I got you that guy. He carries you guys the first half. But it was a great team and, and a very edgy team, like kind of like we were in those days. Very competitive, tough, competed at all times, and Phil was a big part of that. You mentioned, you know, you never really thought the two guys would go into coaching, but but now seeing Phil in this role, what is it, six straight finals uh, now yeah. for him as an assistant? He's got the one ring already with Cleveland. What what uh, what kind of do you look back and say, okay, yeah, maybe I missed, or maybe that I could see that being something well, that translated. I saw it after he played for us. You know, he played, you know, overseas and stuff, but he, you know, he started doing this workout thing. It actually was how he got into the NBA. I don't know if you know, but. Randy Bennett, he used to work out the St. Mary's guys. And Randy knew Mike Brown and recommended him to Mike Brown. And I think that's how the story goes. And that's how he got in the NBA. But Phil is a perfect example of a person that worked hard, had an agenda set. And once he did that, he kind of stayed on it. And he's a good talker. He fits into the NBA way. Once you get in there, you're in there. And he's worked his way through, got close to Kyrie Irving, you know, obviously knows LeBron. And he'll be in the NBA. I would not be surprised someday you see Phil Handy as a head coach in the NBA. He's just that good when coming to being sharp, good talker. He's intelligent. He knows how to operate around that environment. And sometimes for us, that got him into trouble and we had to back him up. But, you know, in those days, we always laugh because we always said this about Phil. We were glad he wasn't our best player. We were glad he was our fourth best player. So if he had our best player, it would have been really hard to handle it. But he was a, a, always a worker and a hustler, and it's proven out for him in his career. And I'm so ecstatic for him because I love all of our guys that play for us that do well. And we've had you know, some that haven't had disappointing lives that it's hard to take sometimes. But these guys have done well, and I'm really happy for them. Yeah, a guy that the, the stars seem to gravitate to. And, Phil, take us back to with AC. What was that like in, in terms of getting him to Manuel? Well, AC was a guy that was more recruited than probably Phil. Uh, but we had such a tight contact with the Saddleback coach then. And I still – I was thinking about last night when I hadn't even thought about this. When AC went to a visit to Kansas State, I'll never forget it. And we were all worried he was going to go visit Kansas State. Now, there were some bigger schools on it. But we felt like we had him pretty much tied up. But he called me from Manhattan. He said, Coach, call Coach Brubble to tell him to get me out of here. I can't take this. I said, you just landed there, AC. He goes, Coach, I've got to get out of here. But with AC, you know, it's just – AC, people don't understand what a classy human being he is, hard worker, loyal, uh, just as good a human being that had no education, comes from terrible situation, just – can't speak highly enough about who he was as a person. And that showed us as his love for him here by the people in Hawaii. I also felt like the AC story was a great one from your vantage point because hey, it takes whatever comes to mind to be able to successfully recruit a guy, especially a guy that you see as someone that can really change the course of the history of your program as AC was. So you mentioned Coach Brummel at Saddleback. Well, just so happened the previous season, uh, the one of the managers for the team was Matt Brummel, his son. And it's just kind of that relationship to be able to uh, cultivate that and to be able to, to, to kind of maintain that connection. It's uh, That's part of the recruiting game, right? Well, I, I think the funniest thing was that we had come off the Trevor Ruffin and then we had had a couple rough years there with we had Tess and Justice and those guys. And I still remember Yoshida, who was the AD then. He had kind of come with this plan that um, he wanted us to recruit high school players and go back to this whatever. I, I don't know. Nothing that we had done before previously. And so we had, you know, decided, well, whatever. We'll try. We're going to try to survive this. And it was a funny line that, let, that Riley always said. He said, Jackson, our number one goal is to out-survive the ADs. And so our goal was always to make sure that we, we out-survived all the ADs. So what happened was they had been kind of honest about our recruiting, and we brought AC in, and then, you know, the rest is history. We made over $2 million for the university on ticket revenue, numerous sellouts. As you know, we had 14 sellouts in one year. And they took that money, and 
and built the football thing. It was amazing. They kind of forgot about that plan they wanted us to have in place to change our recruiting. So AC, I think, kind of set the table for what became kind of our situation was really kind of stable in that one stretch. As we went from him, we had a little bit of a down, but then we had that 2000 and things were very stable for a while. I still think AC and Alika and all those guys kind of set that table where we could be competitive in that conference year in and year out. Even though we went down after we lost all those guys, we bounced back up and our recruiting was always a little bit better during that stretch. And I think AC helped with that. You know, I'm going to ask you a similar question that Jordan asked you with regard to Phil and just kind of what you saw in AC. You mentioned uh, he had a, a difficult life through a lot of stretches of his younger years. Uh, he didn't come in with the greatest educational background, uh, and yet he was a guy that plugged away, was always eligible, and obviously tr helped to transform the program. What did you see in him that, when you look back on now, projected towards his success in, his, uh, in this stage of his life? Well, AC, if you think about where he comes from in Atlanta, um, just incredible what he's made in his life. But AC always had this professional way about him. Everybody we talked to that coached him in the NBA, when he played for us, he always had a way of bringing the team to a different level. He did that in the NBA. He did that for us. He, he raised the players up. He knew what it took to get them to be good, to do the best they could be. You know, they just had bad luck. Those were not the NIT teams that he was on. Those were both NCAA teams, and they just had bad luck. Seth got hurt. Uh, we, you know, we, we lost in the chat. We lost in the first round against New Mexico. It was nasty ranked. We won our division, but we played New Mexico. It just was different. But AC was a special guy when it came to just making his life better than what you could have ever imagined from when he was a youth. And in the NBA, every coach that he had loved him talked about his professionalism, talked about how he was a team developer, team grower. And you see it now. And I think AC will end up hopefully being a, a, a head coach too. AC has a, a young son that I don't know if you know, but he's was second team All-State Florida. And AC's kind of cultivating it gradually, pulling it along because he's worried about the recruitment. of. So AC's like so on to this academic stuff, making sure he's concentrated on this stuff. It's amazing to watch a person who – dropped out in eighth grade, be so concerned about this person get academics. But both of them are, I mean, I just can't tell you how proud we all are. I know Riley is and all of us are of what they've become and how they represent the University of Hawaii. How do we, uh, how do we get the, the early word in to get AC's kid to, uh, to UH? Are we, well, uh, I hate that... to say it, but I, I, I wish he would be a possible recruit. But when you're second team as a junior, second team All-State in Florida – in the big schools division, you're going to get heavy hits. And he's, he's getting heavily recruited, and I think he'll end up going to a Power 5 conference team, I imagine. I wish it would be incredible to have him back. He's totally a different player than AC. Uh, shoots the ball a little bit better, not quite as athletic, a little taller, but a, a lead kid, not as uh, physically, you know, thick as AC was. But he's very talented. I, I watched him on a YouTube thing, and I was amazed how good a player he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll keep dreaming uh, for, for yeah, us well, uh, Hawaii fans. You never know. You never know. We've, we've, we've had some of those kickbacks. You never wonder. When they go to those Power 5 schools, sometimes they come back. Uh, you know, we think back, Anthony Harris was a great player for us. Went to Syracuse, came back. You know, sometimes those are the best comebacks when you get them off of a kick. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, he's, his son's going to sign this year at a big school to be interested. So who do you uh, who do you give the the edge to of of the two franchises that these well, guys are, think, are attached to now? Yeah, it's it's hard to bet against the Lakers, and I think they have the two best players, maybe in the whole NBA. Um, I mean, everybody was talking about Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant's hurt, so I think when you have the two best players of the top five, I mean, the Miami Heat have been a great story, but if they can get a couple games, I'd be I'd be uh, Shock, but they've proven everybody wrong already. And it's been amazing to watch Jimmy Butler and a bunch of guys just kind of come along and, and, and make, a, make a lot of noise. But Jimmy Butler is a kind of guy that you never know. He finds a way to bring his team. He's one of those guys that he's got a chip on his shoulder. He's going to find a way to make you competitive, I think, night in and night out. I think I heard Roy Williams say a line that has stuck with me. He said, uh, recruiting is like shaving. Uh, you don't have to do it every day, but when you don't, people notice. Uh, 
And I just wonder, because I imagine that only becomes more and more true in this day and age with the kind of interconnectedness we have technologically. But what was it like for you throughout your years as a coach, especially being the point man in recruiting, especially for a program that is so geographically distant? What was that like for you? Well, I think I tell people all the time, I think the reason that we moved up in the early 2000s, the reason we stabilized so much was that we had really two full-time recruiters. And with me and Rougeau, it was two full-time recruiters. And I always thought we needed that because when you're the only one doing a majority of it, the opportunity to make mistakes that are dreadful can happen. And when you're recruiting five or six guys all by yourself, you're not going to hit all the time. And I had some times where I didn't hit and we, we paid the price. And sometimes I hit good and it was good. But as soon as Rougeau came aboard, we had this kind of double-edged sword where we could both work together. And I still think wherever you are, but especially here because you're located, such an unusual thing, you need a full staff to recruit. And you need two guys that are good top-of-the-line recruiters. If you could do that, you could dominate it any league, but you could dominate much easier, like I think of the Big West, if you have two people that go out and recruit full-time and get after it because that's just the only way you're going to be successful at any university, at any sport, is that you have to recruit. And if you don't recruit, you're going to continue to be average no matter if you have the best job of the league or the worst job of the league. Yeah, and you're talking about recruiting at a time where, you know, the program was playing in the Western Athletic Conference, and that was when the WAC was as strong as it ever was. I mean, that, that, the, the programs in that league at that time, uh, you had to recruit effectively. That was the only way you could even stay afloat in a conference that had, uh, I think, the kind of coaches and certainly the kind of, of talent uh, that the WAC featured in those days. Well, when those teams used to come out and warm up, and Riley would, like, we'd be sitting there and Riley from Jackson. <laughs> Those guys look scared. I mean, I mean, like Fresno State would come out or UNLV or New Mexico, and they'd all have one or two guys that are going to be at least in the NBA for a while or for a long term. And we're looking over there, our guys, we're hoping one guy might make the NBA or get a shot. It's a little different. So the league was really tough. It was a, it was a great time, though. People forget, too, we were playing without the arena for a while, which made it even tougher when we had Blaisdell and you're competing against all these schools that have facilities that are over the top. The arena was a game changer for, for us, even in the WAC, it stabilized that part of it. And I think people uh, forget, first of all, what a great AD stand sheriff was, and then to get that arena put on campus with 10,000 seats in it, changed the whole uh, spectrum of everything that happened at the athletic department. And to this day, we're still in a situation where we're losing $9 million, $5 million. Can you imagine if you took the arena out of play, what the debts would accumulate? I mean, so I think Sad Sheriff ran a little people, a little edgy because he was a different cat, hardcore football guy. But I always think about Sad Sheriff built that situation, made it competitive in a lot of ways just because he was ex-coach, ex-player. And that arena, every time I look at it, I think, well, that really helped us stabilize our program. Talking with longtime University of Hawaii Hoops assistant Jackson Wheeler. Uh, so what was your pitch to recruits? You know, you're talking about trying to convince them to commit to this school out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, you definitely are a guy whose personality can, uh, you, you, can you have charisma, you can, you can wow them for sure. But what was your pitch? What was sort of the, the baseline of your recruiting proposals? Well, I think our staff, I think one thing about Riley was that we had an idea what we were going to do. We, we always tried to find as many, we recruit a lot of Juco players. We tried to get transfers, tried to get four players as we went on later on, which really proved well for us. Uh, but I think you have to kind of have a niche and you have to stick with it. And if you don't believe in how you're doing, it's like Riley one year, I think we were, he was considering, he was actually getting looked at by Wyoming and Colorado State. And I remember bringing him to the office and said, you know, what do you think, Jax? You think we could make it there? I said, well, I don't know. You know, we have this kind of style, this, way that we recruit, who we are. I don't know if we could really make it work there, you know, and I think we just kind of found a way to survive. And like I said, our goal was always to survive the ADs we had. And, you know, every time we kind of get edgy and somebody might want to whack us, um, 
we'd find a way to survive. And in our business, that's all it's about. You know, I still think one of the funniest pictures ever, and I, I tell the story because I've been out of the business for a while, but we were playing in Tulsa with Carl and those guys, and they were trying to make a change. There, there was a lot of rebellings from Donovan and Yoshida to make a change. And they had kind of talked to Riley about it. And when that was the year we ran the table, Carl started playing for us at the end of the year. We ran the tournament. And there's this picture of these people that are all ecstatic. I wasn't there. I was actually on the road recruiting. And Scott called me and goes, you got to see this picture, Jackson. It looks like Yoshida lost his whole family. And so what are you talking about? It, <laughs> Yoshida was like actually not smiling, I think, because he already had a guy in place to take us out. And so we survived that. I think Yoshida, unfortunately, I like you. He's my friend. But he was gone a little bit after that. So it, it was always funny. We always found a way to survive. And, and we just were good enough at getting enough players that we made it through. It was it was no niche. It was no surprise. I was good sometimes. And sometimes I made mistakes. But we always found a way. And some of the greatest players, I'm blessed to say that I recruited to the University of Hawaii. But um, I was not the uh, savior of the program. Riley built the program. And we just had a way and it worked for us. And uh, I'm just blessed that I worked there for over 20 years in a tough business. And, and we did survive, I think, 480. So that was a good sign. That's a, that's a pretty good run there uh, yeah. well, by that measuring stick. Is there a, are, are there moments or games that sort of stand out more than others? Uh, well, I, think, reflect back? I think the year we won the tournament with Phil, that was the year when Stan had died. And um, – at the airport, I believe. And that was the year that Jared Akata's mother passed away at church during the holidays. I don't know if Kaloa remembers that. But so we were all playing with heavy hearts that year. I still get a little choked up about it, actually, because we were, it was just a hard year for all of us. JB was a new assistant. Um, we were, you know, we were battling Stan being God, who was really close to Riley. And it was a tough league and we had played well up and down, but we had talent, had a lot of new guys. And we got to the tournament, I'll never remember, never forget. We played at the Delta Center and we're playing BYU for the championship and we beat them. And there was probably 12,000 people there, of which maybe 200 were Hawaii people, right? And uh, Jared's father was there. And I remember it was very emotional for all of us. And uh, tough year, you know, they have 11 kids, I think, in their family, right? And it's a, a really exciting year. And I remember Jamie sitting with me on the bench, a new assistant, brand new Division One type of future for him. And, and he looked at me, he goes, we're going to do it. We're going to win. We're going to go to the NCAA tournament. And it all just said, and that was just a special year. Probably of all the years I was there, one that I remember the best, because I was only there for a few years by then. It's just special times. Yeah, it's, it's – uh... I think fond memories for a lot of fans following that as well. Um, to kind of take it in a different direction of, of those times and games where you're sitting on the bench, was there, was there an opponent or a program that just kind of, just kind of seemed to be the, the arch nemesis or, or the, the one that was always keeping you up uh, at night over the years? I think Fresno State was obviously a big rival of ours. And, uh, when they came to town, they caused us a lot of, Drama. They just had a lot of character, especially when Tark was there. It was always unusual. But the league itself had a lot of, you know, Rick Majerus was a character. There was just so many coaches that were such dynamic coaches in the profession. And to show up every night to beat, to go against them, Coach Haskins at UTEP. Uh, you know, just unbelievable experience. I really enjoyed that when I came here and being in the league and experiencing that every night. But I think Fresno was, was one that always seemed to get us. But um, I still remember the one year when we won the conference championship with, uh, with Mark Campbell and Carl and Sava and all those guys. And we had lost to Nevada the night before, or two, I think it was two days before. And so we were in jeopardy of not winning the conference championship. And we're playing Fresno with Melvin Eli, and who was you know, a great NBA player. And I remember Mark Campbell crying after the Nevada game, thinking, Wills, we're not going to make the tournament. We're going to have to win the tournament. And I said, no, we can beat Fresno. We could win the championship. And we went there, we won, and Melvin Eli was, was on the team, and we beat them at Sullivan Arena in front of a sellout crowd. And, and I remember that was one of my highlights of remembering there, too, because Saba was out, and Mike McIntyre, who has passed recently, played great, and Carl carried us in an incredible game. It was just one of those nights that I remember 
too, that very special, very emotional after the game. And, and to win the conference championship in that league with Tulsa, everybody was, was quite an achievement. Yeah, Mark Campbell, another guy you recruited. And I think another amazing part of that story is that you could see the tears in his eyes through his bushy bangs because that was another <laughs> thing he was known for uh, back then. You know, you've always been an, an amazing uh, case study uh, when it comes to coaching because you see so many assistants who, uh, you know, over, over, the, the, you know, over the years maybe decide or, or start to get a little antsy and maybe decide they want to uh, branch out, maybe try to run their own program, or they want to position themselves to take over that program. Uh, and that never really seemed to come to fruition for you. That wasn't something you seemed to long for. Uh, why was that? What, what was it about this gig that, that made you so comfortable with where you were at? Well, I think, as you know, that I love Hawaii. But, you know, when I first got here, I got married. You know, I was a widow. I lost my first wife and a um, child same time. And so I came here at a little transition time of my life and I met Lael and we've been married for 30 years. Cause you believe that could go 30 years. That's awesome. You've been putting up with me, but it's a little different as you know, I think cause you're married to someone from Valley and well, you're from Hawaii, but once we get kind of um, into where we're from, where we're living, my wife had a great job. She had, we had our, our daughter here, you know, our stepdaughter. Um, so um, it never was a thought for me to ever move. I, I never was going to leave here. I, I decided long ago that I was going to make it last as long as it could, and Leo was going to be here. And we had talked about it before when, when I go to the mainland after we, when we got fired, I had to decide would I continue to go coaching. And I decided that it wasn't, it was, I was already old enough, and this was our home, and we've been very blessed. And Leo has a great job, as you know. Vice President of Cobble Baker Real Estate. And so it never was a thought. I, I was satisfied with the way things went for me. When we got fired after that 20 plus years here, I everyone asked me, are you upset or do you have any bad? No, the university was fantastic to me. I loved every bit of it. It had its ups and downs. The last couple of years were challenging. Um, but guess what? As you look back at my run here and my life here, I could only be thankful and enjoy every bit of it. And I'll end up staying here probably the rest of my life and, and living here and probably getting buried in some dirt out here somewhere. So <laughs> well, uh, no problem, no problem. I just never really felt like it was necessary. You think about guys we've had, J.B., for example, that have left. There's, if the opportunities were there to move, I turned down a job at USC one year as an assistant. But I just always felt comfortable here and just knew it was our, our home and we were going to stay here. It might be from a basketball standpoint uh, a good thing anyway. I remember Jeff Law used to make the joke that if Jackson ever took over the program, the NCAA would be down here investigating <laughs> within the week. <laughs> they might because we might have too many good guys. And you see that happen to people where they had too many good guys and they start coming in on you. So, but it was, uh, I, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed being the assistant, the associate coach. But beyond that, it just, I had, I had had enough. I had 30 years of college coaching. That was plenty for any normal human being, which I'm far from normal. So it, it all worked out. And like I said, I want all the best for UH. I never say anything bad about them. Um, I think sometimes I hope that we can move up in all sports at the University of Hawaii. I think that we could improve, but it's easy stepping from the outside looking in anymore. But uh, I just wish the best for the University of Hawaii in every avenue. And I've been fortunate. The academic part has served me well teaching the last few years. So like I said, I, I owe the university a lot and I have nothing but the best for them in the future. And I appreciate everything they've done for me. Well, I think that's really well said. Uh, we do have to ask you the obligatory question though, of just, I, and I know that, you know, you, you talk about not being immersed in basketball, but I know you watch it even from afar. Uh, and this is going to be a season perhaps unlike any other, right? With uh, the adjustment to the schedule and, and, and kind of the, the, the puzzle that needs to be put together from a scheduling standpoint. Uh, and then you talk about the NCAA tournament and what that will look like. Uh, what do you think this situation portends from the University of Hawaii standpoint? What can be the realistic expectations for UH this year? Well, I think realistic, we have to be realistic, right? If, if we're really looking at it in a true way that we think we kind of, know a little bit about basketball. And obviously there, 
in my opinion, they're back into a building situation. They're going to try to turn the corner. You know, with Drew leaving, it kind of cleared the whole plate. So now they've got a whole new bunch of food on it, and they're going to have to try to make it work together. And it's a little weird for me because they, they've now got a lot of Juco players, which is kind of interesting. They have eight new bodies. Um, and I still think the way they play Rod's style, they're having veteran players helps them a lot. Their level of talent, as I'm not being critical, but needs, needs to improve for them to compete for the championship. But they developed their players, and that experience has helped them to basically be a middle-of-the-pack team in the Big West, other than the first year when they left, all those guys were left over from Gibbs and Benji's deal. So I think it's going to be a challenging year for them. Plus, not having the preseason where you have all these home games to get your wins, a lot of wins, come from behind. You're going to be like 10 and 5. You're going into conference with the best record because all the other teams that have been with Big West have played all these guaranteed games and got the heck beat out of them. And they're like 4 and 8, but that doesn't mean they're 4 and 8. So that's going to be unusual because their growth is going to have to be really very short when they jump into the conference play. I don't have any idea. Maybe you do, Kano, but I have no idea how many games they're going to play before they open the Big West schedule. I really don't. And so I think that development is going to be interesting to watch. And 20 games in the league is going to be – they've been 8-8 eight and eight almost every year for the last three years, right? It's 9-7. So to get to that, it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes. I hope they can challenge the top teams. But it is the Big West. So there's not any powerhouses other than – I think Irvine and Santa Barbara, and I think Riverside is a sleeper this year with a lot of players back, those three. But, and then I think Davis will be good again. But their other teams are all kind of who knows what you're going to get. I could talk hoops with Jackson Wheeler all day, every day. It's, it's so much fun and uh, just so many great memories, such a wonderful level of nostalgia. And congratulations to you for being part of this really splendid storyline that we get to enjoy from uh, our, our vantage point here in Hawaii of Phil Handy and A.C. Carter uh, going at it in the NBA bleeping finals. That's amazing. Well, I'll tell you right now, I, I know that Riley and, and Bob, who's here all the time now, you know, and, and myself, we, we, we love the program. We enjoyed all of the time we had here. And for our guys, any of our guys to do this well is great. And I just hope it's it's a fun time, and I hope someday that we can have another one of these meetings when they announce Anthony Carter or Phil Handy as head coaches in the NBA. Wouldn't that be great? That would be. Yeah, no, that's a deal, too. That's a date. Mark it down. Uh, Wheels, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Nice being with you and Jordan, and best to all your families, and uh, be safe and be well, and we'll see you down the road. All right, thanks again to Jackson Wheeler. Time now, Jordan, for our best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. What's your best, my man? Yeah, my best earlier, we were talking about the Raven struggles against the Chiefs. Could it be perhaps because of the Chiefs scout team quarterback, Jordan Ta'amu, Pearl City graduate who went under-recruited, went to junior college, and then found his way to Ole Miss in the SEC, and then not really a look from the NFL, but he goes in the XFL route, plays so well for the, what is it, the St. Louis Battlehawks, I think was their nickname. Uh, and then he latches on with the Chiefs. Andy Reid apparently loved them when he was playing in the XFL. He signed to the scout team or the practice squad, I should say, and it's been their scout team quarterback, and they used him as Lamar Jackson uh, fill-in, and uh, all the Chiefs did was hold Jackson to 97 passing yards and 83 rushing yards and one touchdown, like by far his worst outing in a couple of years, and so maybe it was Tomo. All right, my best, Colin Cowherd, denigrated quarterbacks in general who wear their hats backwards at press conferences or in public. You know how quarterbacks like to wear baseball caps? He directed this venom at Carson Wentz after his week two performance. He had previously busted this card out before criticizing Baker Mayfield and others for doing the same, saying it shows a lack of professionalism, maturity, almost drawing a direct line to subpar performance on the field. This is my best because literally a day later, Russell Wilson 
who I think is most everybody's favorite or one of the top two favorites to win MVP already through a couple of weeks. He participated in a media availability. And guess what? Russell was wearing a baseball hat backwards. Not much you can criticize him about there, Colin Cowherd. So that was my best. What's your worst, Jordan? Yeah, what a party pooper, Colin Cowherd. (laughs) My worst. Parrots in a wildlife park in Britain have been pulled from public display. So they're they're keeping them back in the back because once they put them out to view by the public, uh, they were swearing at everybody, just cussing, cussing up a storm. These five parrots who were calling everybody fat bleeps and telling them to F off. Uh, and so they, they put them out a day and uh, the parrots, these parrots who were just recently donated by private individuals, couldn't stop swearing at people. Workers, passerbys, didn't matter. Uh, so the British parrots, uh, who apparently are more foul mouthed than a sailor, are my worst of the week. <laughs> no commentary, no broad commentary on all the animals from Great Britain. Just these specific parrots, right? I don't know about their upbringing, but uh, sounds like they may have grown up at my house. All right, so my worst is Doc Rivers getting let go by the Clippers. Obviously, you knew someone had to fall on the sword. It's my worst, though, because they were the favorite to win the championship in the eyes of many, myself included. And then Paul George started clanging shots off the side of the backboard. Uh, All of a sudden, Montrez Harrell couldn't guard Nikola Jokic. And of course, it's Doc Rivers' fault. And it's my worst because, hey, look, I know someone's got to go and it's not going to be any of the players. It's going to be the head coach. Uh, But I feel like Doc Rivers got a raw deal in this particular instance. So that's my worst. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. That's it for us. Thanks to Jackson Wheeler. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Jordan, we'll do it again soon. Looking forward to it.